Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we talk with Steve Gitti, Director of Threat Intelligence at Risk IQ. We discuss how to collect relevant, actionable intelligence to protect our organizations. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and joining me every single episode is my security-hardened co-host, Brandon Johnson. How you doing today, buddy? Doing great, Eric. I've been looking forward to this uh, all week. Yeah, I'm stoked. I just uh, I just got a transfer, a lateral promotion at work. I went from uh, working in sales to now I'm going to be technical marketing manager for the RHEL BU, so I'm really excited about that. May actually open up a few doors for, for this show that wouldn't otherwise be open. But uh, yeah, I mean, can't it doesn't get much better than that. You know, I, I'm changing roles at work and we've got an awesome, awesome show coming up and I'm a little wired. I changed roles too. You're a people manager now, so... They've scheduled the lobotomy to remove all <laughs> technical knowledge from my brain. <laughs> yeah, it is It is kind of ironic that you and I ended up with uh, with promotions at pretty much at the same time. I think they were announced within 24 hours of each other, but, but that's a good time. I'm excited, not just about work, but uh, also about the, the show. And if you don't know by now my energy level does not get compartmentalized. If I'm excited about one thing, I'm excited about everything. So with that being said, I'm going to shut up and we're going to talk about our awesome sponsors. I'll try not to ramble and then we'll get into today's interview. Today's episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit by going to do co slash DLN. DigitalOcean is your one-stop shop to deploy, scale, and monitor your infrastructure and applications. DigitalOcean offers managed Kubernetes instances with just a few clicks. Simply select the size and location of your workers and off you go. Need fast, reliable servers? No problem. DO offers flexible compute options like CPU or memory optimized instances. DigitalOcean also is home to the app marketplace with one-click deploy apps from WordPress to pre-built LAMP stacks. Try their services for yourself by going to do.co slash DLN. You can create an account and receive a $100 credit good for two months. Thank you so much to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Pseudo Show. Today's interview is sponsored by none other than Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to check out their amazing service. You may or may not know this, but websites and their apps are under attack every single day. And because of this, security breaches are likely to occur. When you reuse the same passwords across many websites, hackers thank you because they can easily access your email, bank, and other important accounts. This is why security experts recommend that you use a different randomly generated password or passphrase for every online account. With Bitwarden, you can create these randomly generated passwords, and they can be different for every site you visit. The best part is, Bitwarden will manage all of this for you so you don't have to. Bitwarden works across all of your devices from mobile, desktop, browser plugins, and even on the command line. Make the smart move and go check out bitwarden.com DLN and get started for free. If you're like me, though, you'll want access to all Bitwarden has to offer with the Premium Edition, especially when the Premium Edition starts at only $10 per year. That's right, just $10 per year. Go to bitwarden.com DLN, and thank you, Bitwarden, for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire 
Destination Linux Network. Every single year since I entered the technology space, cyber attacks have gotten bolder, they're more widespread, and they're more public. One of the most recent attacks even hit the mainstream news. I had a relative who, by their own admission, has little understanding of technology. They called me to make sure that my employer wasn't impacted. Now more than ever, knowledge of the current threat landscape is essential if you want your organization to survive. I don't think I'm overselling this at all, really. So joining us today is Steve Ginty, the Director of Threat Intelligence at Risk IQ. And on top of having a really impressive title, I just want to say welcome to the Pseudo Show. Thanks for having me. Really excited to talk with you guys. Yeah, we've got a great, uh, great lineup of, of conversation points today. And so why don't we start out, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself and, and what brought you into technology and specifically security. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm the director of threat intelligence uh, here at Risk IQ. The, the team uh, that I work with focuses uh, on providing insights into attacks that take place uh, and actors that are attacking organizations uh, and an understanding of how they're attempting to gain access to those organizations. Uh, so I've meandered my way through the security space. I started off as uh, just a policy person started to get interested in the technical aspects of, of IT security while I was working at a couple of defense contractors and really dug in and I have a financial background. Uh, and so the analytic capability that comes with analyzing numbers seemed to play well with, uh, with investigating threats, IPs, domains, and the kind of infrastructure behind them. Uh, and so I parlayed that that capability into, into a role as an analyst and, and grew there. So are you are you a technologist by background or a, a finance guy by background? I have a finance degree, so I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd consider myself uh, either. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. By happenstance, I would go with uh, probably an analyst uh, by trade is, is the best way to to describe myself, and that's how uh, I've slowly grown in in the industry is, is digging into kind of these problems and, and trying to analyze them and understand what makes up the technology, what makes up these attacks, and, and built built my first company with a, with a friend of mine, Randy Dixon to help organizations conduct those types of investigations. It was Passive Total, which was acquired by RiskIQ, and that's now our kind of our threat intelligence and, and analyst uh, platform. Yeah, I, I always ask just because I, I'm somewhat unusual in the technology space. I, I love technology. I went to school for technology, and I haven't ever since I graduated from college, I haven't had a job at, outside the technology space. So I always ask just because I find it fascinating how different people end up where, where they're at. But you, you mentioned a startup prior to Risk I IQ. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, a, uh, a friend, an analyst friend of mine, we worked together and we were working on kind of threat investigations and understanding attacks. And so we started, we were spending a lot of time reviewing passive DNS data. And so the, the issue there was, it was a lot of command line tools, a lot of data flowing by you, uh, a lot of IPs, domains, not a good way to keep state of anything and keep track of anything. And so I had a lot of text files and Excel spreadsheets and OneNote notebooks and Maltigo charts and you name it. It was just all this stuff. And so we, we started creating and playing around with the ability to label passive DNS data and um, aggregate it across sources. So, you know, at that time, VirusTotal had a little passive DNS in its repository, a Farsight, a DNSDB was, uh, was available. OpenDNS, all of these kind of providers had different data points. And as an analyst, I, I like to say I'm lazy. I usually forget to go to maybe one of those databases. I get busy and distracted. Uh, and so I wanted to build, we wanted to build a tool that helped us do that aggregation automatically. So I didn't have to remember. And also then apply, provide a way to apply labels and keep state. So if I saw this infrastructure in a specific attack six months ago, I would remind myself that I saw it dynamically as I was doing a follow-on analysis. So 
It was really the ability to to label kind of internet data you know, at scale, and we've grown that capability as we've been a part of Risk IQ. I want to dive right into this. I mean, it's this has been like the last nine months have been interesting, to put it mildly. I solar winds, I, all the recent uh, ransomware attacks like the Colonial Pipeline, JBS, a bunch of others. Those ones are just the ones that hit the headlines this week. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, right away, probably one that's still at the top of my mind. And I talked about it a lot on the show. I talk about it with customers myself. And that's solar winds, the solar winds hack, which was the uh, supply chain attack. And I kind of just want to get your take on that. It's something I'm really passionate about. I'm very concerned about the open source supply chain and, and, and just, I know my customers have become very aware of how important their software supply chain is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's certainly a, a relevant topic and kind of keeps uh, coming up since uh, the November, December timeframe and is a, is a big question of our customers too. And so Risk IQ's kind of goal is to, to help customers answer questions around these types of, of breaches, events, vulnerabilities quickly so someone could, could start to understand the risk profile or impact when, you know, SolarWinds hack is announced. And third-party supply chain type uh, scenarios are, are, are things that we've been helping organizations with in multiple different areas. So a lot of, if you think of like the Ticketmaster hack a few years back, and some others, those were third-party app a code that was in the platform that allowed those actors to get access to and, and siphon off the payment card data. And so it, it is a good avenue of attack because most people aren't interrogating third-party software as much as maybe they should. So how are you working with customers to to mitigate this? I mean, that's probably the question on everyone's mind, the mitigation. How do we mitigate it? From an attack surface scenario, it is, is, it is a good question. It's a hard question to answer, right? Because there's, there's only so much insight you can get to your, your third-party providers. So you think about the, the checklists that have been implemented to tell us your security that most organizations go through to become a supplier. It's, it, it's an exercise that, that probably doesn't really provide too much insight to an organization anymore. So I think as, our, as we talk to our customers, it's really understanding uh, who your vendors are and what their attack service looks like and how that impacts you and how it interconnects with you. So not to throw a, a product pitch out, but one of the things we are we are working on is, uh, is profiling organizations uh, across the Global 2000 to understand some of these, what their risk exposure is to vulnerabilities as they come up uh, and allowing uh, customers to see that information on specific third-party providers so that they can understand the exposure of not only their attack service, but their major suppliers as well. So the way we're trying to solve it in the near term is visibility, because if you're worried about uh, a specific vulnerability impacting your organization and taking proactive measures to, to to patch it or to mitigate it, because the actors who there are actors that leverage it and target your organization, why wouldn't you want to know if that exists in your critical third-party suppliers and work with them to help mitigate that avenue as well? So are the the bulk of Risk IQ's customers just trying? Paint a more clear picture, mostly for myself. <laughs> Are most of Risk IQ's customers the software vendors or their their customers? Uh, it, it's it's fairly broad. So we have a an enterprise tool suite that markets to more of the the global two thousand Fortune five hundred organizations. So so a lot of financial sector, manufacturing, retail, government, defense, security as well, because of the data we we collect. 
Uh, and we have that, that our passive total kind of analyst platform, which is is more entry level for some organizations. And, and so it's a broader swath of, of of both kind of that global 2000 and smaller security operations, maybe mid tier organizations that are trying to answer these questions. And so it's a broad mix. But, you know, what we find is from managing your attack surface. Uh, it takes a really keyed in organization to do this. So you've seen this kind of happening and taking place at in the Fortune you know, 100, probably in the financial sector for a while. We're seeing this slowly branch out into other areas of, of the industry where where it's becoming more of a more of a need to have than a nice to have. And so we're trying to simplify our product suite so it's not as management heavy, curate an inventory, understand your environment. Okay, how can we get you quick insights into the latest and greatest, as, as Brandon was saying? So vCenter over the weekend or or Microsoft Exchange or SharePoint or what have you, as they keep rolling out, how do you get that situational awareness for, for where it is in your environment? Because a lot of organizations even medium to, to large organizations have emanated themselves into this amalgamation of, of an IT environment that's hard to, to manage and keep track of. So you want to answer that question quickly. Do I have this and should I be working? Well, and if you look at a lot of the applications that are built these days, a lot of, you, you, you mentioned, you, you hit the nail on the head by saying that a lot of companies have done mergers and acquisitions to the point of they're not even sure what's in their own stack. But We've talked to developers on this show that have customers who have built applications using multiple, multiple open source projects. So they're not even sure <laughs> if you ask them what projects they've used to build their own application. So you've got multiple levels of uncertainty now that you then have to, if a bad actor is knocking at your door, he's not going to care whether you have a good inventory of what's in your application or not. Yeah, I mean, and you're seeing that kind of like with the PHP scenario a couple months back, or some of these kind of scenarios where malicious packages with legit names similar to the things you would just randomly pip install or add into a code base are becoming prime targets as, as well. And so you, you have to really, you have to understand that environment. You have to be able to dynamically answer that question too. You know what I mean? It's, it's no longer uh, acceptable to just have an inventory in a asset management system or in a, in a spreadsheet or however organizations are managing these things, you have to be able to then take that kind of baseline and ask questions that you didn't foresee you were going to need to ask because you don't know what the next vulnerability uh, is going to be. Yeah. And you usually it's, uh, you know, I actually found most of the time it's someone that just grabbed a library that looked similar to the one next to it. And the one next to it was the real one. And the one when they picked was the fake one. And it's, you got to watch your supply chain. That's really what it comes right down to. You just got to watch your supply chain. Whether if it's proprietary software or open source, you got to watch your supply chain. We can, looking at SolarWinds, the interesting thing for me was it, it got a lot of attention. And it, because it was a little more novelty on the supply chain side, we've been talking about supply chain attacks for a while. And they have been a thing that, that organizations have been aware of. I think the brazen nature of it is what got the attention of, of everybody. But if you look at the, if I look at the, the detections we have in our system for how many organizations are, are impacted from the Orion platform itself, we're, we're talking about sub 1000 organizations max. And even if we then take it a, a step further of who is really targeted with a second or third stage payload to, to make use of that avenue of attack, it was probably sub 100 organizations. And so once you start to dig in, I think it's very interesting from an espionage perspective and, and, and from a capability perspective. But, you know, it was it was very interesting to me that it didn't get as much. It got a lot more press than, say, Exchange did when Exchange came out at the big in patch Tuesday in, in March. It was like a, a slow burn on Exchange where all of a sudden 
everybody was like, oh man, this is, this is really big. And where solar winds, it was like, boom, it just seemed like the, you know, the media attention was, was a little disproportionate, I guess, for the eventual impact. Yeah. I, maybe one of the things I've been thinking about, because I do agree with that, that its impact was probably not as big as, as it was sensationalized. What happened was a big deal, but like from a, like, I think it might, it seemed like it was just due to negligence. I put it frank, <laughs> like I have no other way to put it. So Limited security at best, if we're, if we're, if we're being nice. I, I think that's why it got the attention because of the ease of how it happened. I think that's really what it was. Yeah, you're probably you're probably right. You know, and we had a lot of people asking us like, "Is this? Am I impacted by this?" I don't I don't know. And we can help them answer that question, and that's what we that's what we're here for 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 our customers. But it was the reverse uh, on the exchange. I just assumed, "Ooh, this is bad." Like you guys, like here it is. Like here's all the information. Everybody go patch. It was like a slow burn of oh, by Friday, ooh, this is this is probably more a bigger deal than than what we thought. And, and I think we're seeing that kind of if we want to move from solar winds to some of the ransomware where stuff that's taking place uh, recently, you you kind of, it's a similar scenario. They're all kind of using the same vulnerabilities to target these organizations and get a foothold. So the espionage actors are getting a little, are getting better at their tradecraft and you know, using more interesting supply chain type avenues of attack. We're now seeing kind of everybody pile in from the cybercrime, from the ransomware, from the espionage around all of these other vulnerabilities that are constantly coming out in VPN devices, whether it's Pulse or Palo Alto or Fortinet or what was the... I know that so the, that the Colonial Pipeline, someone from Colonial Pipeline just mentioned that they think it was a deployed VPN, legacy VPN that was just hanging out there on the internet that they weren't really aware of and, and that they weren't using. Prime avenue of attack for, not a, for, for any actor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, having something just out there, like... The, the, I mean, like, I get that. Like in my home lab, I accidentally forget to turn off SSH, but a corporation, I, I just, uh, that, that's, uh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that one. That's interesting. On, on the ransomware side, I mean, in getting the foothold, in, once they're in, I mean, you're screwed. It, I don't know how else to put it, but because w- as soon as they got in, it, it's uh, pay X amount of Bitcoin or we're going to delete your data. And it's a double, you know, I mean, they, they, you've seen this over the last two years, the sophistication has increased. It's gone from phishing as the primary avenue of attack to leveraging these kind of VPN or network device vulnerabilities or poor or weak passwords for, for RDP or purchased, you know, credentials to access the system. And, and therefore they're, they're going in, you know, low and slow, taking their time to find the important things, siphon them off. And, and instead of randomly opportunistic of, oh, let's see if someone clicks my email and I can ransom a couple systems, I'm going to ransom the, the, the important critical data of an organization. Uh, and backups aren't, backups are, are useful. And the double extortion play that you're seeing come out is, oh, we'll just leak that data anyways if you don't pay. That's it's hard to combat. Yeah. I think the perception is, and maybe it hasn't really increased, like cybercrime like this really hasn't increased over the years. It's probably always been the same. It's just getting more attention. But from a perception standpoint, it's still what's going on or what's wrong, right? Are we just not securing our systems enough? Are we, is it an education problem, a negligence problem? Are we setting our our passwords to company name one, two, three. <laughs> That's one of the things I've been thinking about. What, what's going on that in the industry that is like making 
these named attacks a daily thing, pretty much. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I talk to other people about this a lot, and I think about this a lot as, as we present on, on different topics to our customers and, and at conferences. It does seem like the pace is increasing. And so I will say whether it is because it's getting more media attention or it's because the pace is increasing, a bit of a question mark in, in my head. I'm guessing a lot of this ransomware stuff has been going on for a long time, especially this high dollar ransomware since at least 2019 or earlier. Uh, so it's not it's not new per se. I think maybe the public is getting a little more attuned to it and therefore we're seeing more reporting on it. Organizations are openly discussing it more, certainly. And there's uh, there's been more impact to these organizations uh, so they can't really sweep it under the rug. But I think what, you know, what we see from a risk IQ perspective is the pace of critical vulnerabilities in systems just seems to be relentless at the moment. And so not only do you have to keep up with the fact that these bad actors are leveraging vulnerabilities from 20, 2019, 2020, and, and the latest and greatest, new ones just keep coming out that you, that you have to, to be aware of and you have to patch and you have to get in your already burdened patch cycle. And I, I think there is a bit of, of fatigue to it as well, right? We, we just, we can't keep pace with an evolving legacy IT system, I think, is, is really what, what, what's starting to shine through. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely the fatigue, for sure. I mean, I feel like being in the industry now a little over 20 years, it just, yeah, I, I can see it now. Yeah, it, it, I could definitely see, in some cases, a little bit of com- you know, combination of a boy who cried wolf and I just need to at, or to the uber paranoid or some that are just like staying on top of it. But then there are some that's just like, you keep raising these alarms and it never happens to me. So so have just the complexity of the applications that we're dependent upon? Because when I came into the industry, the three-tier architecture reigned king. I mean, if you didn't have three tiers, you, you didn't exist. But now we talk about 12-factor applications and we talk about multi-cloud. I mean, has the snowball peaked the the hill here and now it's just a mad roll to the bottom? That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe a little bit, you know, right? I think it goes back to our earlier uh, conversation about all these dependencies and supply chain scenarios and everything is now, everything's connected to the internet. So you're not, you're defending against a, a broader attack surface. So 10 years ago, we were still defending against a, a more finite kind of set of devices and a perimeter. And, and while that architecture did not work and hasn't worked, we just keep adding more things to to the internet now that are also vulnerable and have to have to be defended against. So add in any kind of internet of things device that can be rounded up into a botnet these days and used in an attack. It, you're, you're just, I feel like it's, uh, it's like a multi, multi front war at this point, right? <laughs> that you're, you're constantly getting hit from, from some direction and, and switching your focus. So how would you recommend identifying those attack surfaces or is it just anything and everything that has an IP address nowadays? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think the starting point is anything and everything that has an IP address for, for an organization or that is interconnected to critical functions of your, your organization. We take the approach of creating discovery algorithms that go out and, and using a bunch of different seed values, try to identify what we think is yours or possibly yours so that we can create that picture based on our external view. So we're we're not taking taking an organization's word for it. Uh, that is that is helpful. That that base knowledge of truth is very helpful. But what else can we identify that's out there that we know belongs to organization X based on dependencies, interconnections between applications, registered infrastructure via via who is and 
PDNS and different things, different data sets like that. Uh, so we're going and doing that collection and curation for an organization and then labeling that data. So once you find it, oh, great, you, you have 10,000 IP addresses that, that are associated with your organization. What's on it? And of those devices, what are the, what are the vulnerabilities that, that are possibly exposed to those devices that, that would be an avenue for, for an attacker to target you? So one of the, the model, big cloud model now that I, I've been pushing really hard is uh, zero trust. So like it is, you cannot get in unless you, <laughs> period, unless you have an account, you like the, and even if you have an account, it's like a ban on if there's any malicious activity. That's how I look at zero trust with some of the solutions I work with. What's your thoughts on implementing a zero trust model for on because I, I look at that as being proactive, like as best as we can these days, versus the reactive, I can hurry up and patch and and then get rid of the bad actor. <laughs> so before Steve answers, I did want to, just because those dadgum marketing people keep throwing out new buzzwords, I, I did want to take a moment and define what zero trust networking is. So Steve hinted at the older model. And if you think about a fortress, think about a medieval castle or something, everything is about keeping unwanted actors out. We put all of our defenses up, we, we dig a moat around it, and that's it. Once, if you can't get past the wall, you can't get in. But the problem with that kind of a design is, once you've breached the wall, whether that's through the front gates, or whether that's through a secret tunnel underneath your castle wall, you're inside, and you basically have full access to everything. So the flip side of that, this, what Brandon started talking about was zero trust. And that's basically where pretty much everything's on the internet anyway. So that, that whole perimeter defense doesn't work. So the alternative idea is to protect everything from everyone, including people on the inside of the network. So every time you log in, you have to identify yourself. Every time you try and take an action, the system checks, do you have the authority to take that action? And if not, then like Brandon said, you're banned. I don't care if you're the sysadmin or Joe the hacker. So anyway, I, I felt like we should define that term before, before we get to Steve's answer. Yeah, thank you, Eric. <laughs> and in my defense, I work in marketing. So, <laughs> so I, I'm kind of bashing myself. Anyway, Steve, wh what are your thoughts on Zero Trust? <laughs> I think we're we're headed in that direction, right? Easier for for newer organizations like startups or younger organizations to start to adopt those models very quickly because they don't have the burden of of legacy IT systems and operations. And I think you're seeing a lot of a lot of Fortune, you know, 500 organizations go in this direction. I think what we're struggling right now is with speaking of expanding the attack service. We're going to move into into these kind of cloud-like scenarios into a zero trust environment, but we're still we're still lugging along all that legacy stuff for the near term that we that we have to defend. And I think that's going to be the next kind of three to five year horizon of of what we're battling with is your COVID pushed people to to start to really consider these basically remote everything and and zero trust and moving to cloud-based services. And so it really accelerated people's digital transformation 
organizations were already going down that path, but but it really kicked it into high gear. And now we're stuck with the, okay, how do we make that transition? I don't want to say seamlessly, or how do we ensure we make that transition appropriately? How do we make sure we don't end up with applications in the cloud that we're protecting with the zero trust model while we still have these random legacy systems never dying off for, because there's some critical business function that we're, that we're hesitant to, to transition. Now, the problem with legacy systems is they're revenue generating. Yes, there's money tied to it. Uh, <laughs> so it's hard to get rid of them. It's really hard. It's really hard. When thinking about the, is there, do you ever see organizations applying, maybe it's not 100% zero trust, but it's something in between what we have with legacy IT and with modern security, applying some of those practices, or are you seeing it already in legacy systems? I mean, I think you're starting, you're starting to see it. I think the, we can use the exchange example of as a key driver of pushing people into a cloud-based solution. I mean, if you are if you're patching in March and then you're patching another four or zero days in April, are and you don't have that type of staff or bandwidth, or do you really want to keep, you know, that system on premise? Do you want to shift to a cloud-based solution for it, where you know where Microsoft is taking care of the the patching and, and the security and, and the and the updating? So I think you're you're seeing that transition play out a bit for organizations. Uh, I think that's a prime example of. Do I have the bandwidth and the capability to support said legacy system? If not, should I should I shift it to the cloud? I, I do think we're we're starting to see that with with our customer base. It's a little, it's just a little slower, right? That's an amazing perspective. Like before, I worked for for Red Hat, and before we started this podcast, I worked for uh, GitLab, and so I was talking to sysadmins and that kind of thing, sysadmins and developers who were writing their applications, and they. A lot of them started to ask the question, is this in our wheelhouse? Is this something that we want to spend our time on? If we are a startup that is writing a, I don't know, some kind of a medical, a good example is eluding me. But if we're writing this widget, this, this widget software here, do we really want to become experts on exchange or why not just use hosted exchange instead of hosting our own exchange server? So that you could even just in the last three years see that transition and thinking of this isn't our skill set. So why are we trying to force the issue just to say we have an exchange server? Yeah, and I think that you know, I think that realization is taking place uh, at organizations. Do I need to manage this thing? And if not, can I put it somewhere where I'm getting the uplift of expertise at that organization to to both improve the the product, you know, feature wise, but also to improve the security. You know, this is more my opinion than, than employer or anything. But some something ha- something has to shift, right? If you look at if you even look at just the beginning of this year, the last five months, we're we're putting a lot of onus on organizations to to patch and to and to secure and to do all these things. And I don't know, I just don't see I don't see us being able to throw people and process and, and not enough money at this to. To build our way out of it, so we're going to have to look at a different way to to start to secure these these assets. And maybe it is a expanding a your supply chain and your third party providers, which opens up another kind of avenue, obviously, but which maybe closes off five others that that could be detrimental to your business. I see that with some some software on the infrastructure side, like people creating S three buckets and leaving a. St- Star, which always makes my day when I see that. One. Uh, <laughs> uh, world writable. What what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> 
it definitely reduces the attack surface. But then you have, yeah, we've we're we're we've outsourced all our email to G Suite or to Office 365, but we're hosting our our cool new application and on AWS, and now it and we've we've done all this. So it's changing where companies need to focus. That's really how I see it. Is it just changes where. Before they had to focus on just they had to focus on exchange and a bunch of other things. Now they just have to focus on their apps, but they also have to focus on yeah, Amazon isn't going to secure this for me. Correct. You know, I mean, and so there's no, it's not a I'm not I'm under no delusion that that we are that we are getting rid of the problem. We're we're probably we're, we're getting another set of problems, but hopefully that's a smaller set of problems or or a set of problems that we can easily you know work towards improving as we learn our mistakes. I think it goes back to a skill set thing. It's purely, yeah. And that, that's something that's fixable. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, we, one of our, it was like two years ago where we started seeing weird S3 scenarios where these S3 buckets kept popping up in, in some of our detection logs for credit card skimming. We're like, what is going on? And we were able to enumerate thousands of open S3 buckets that these actors were basically able to access, pull down JavaScript files, add their skimmer to the file and upload it to the bucket. And then that, those the sites that that used those scripts were then automatically loading them into the page, and so this skimmer was showing up all over the place. Now, the effective nature of, of it was was very low. They were going for uh, maybe one percent of the time. The actual pat the the file they had modified with their skimmer would be effectively loaded into a checkout page that could let them grab credit card data. But it was one of the one of the earlier supply chain attacks around with AWS that we saw that was like, oh, this is a big deal. And we're seeing this just because we were seeing the, the skimmer and we have detection in place for these skimmers. And we're like, why are all these S3 buckets showing up? Uh, all of them were, were world readable and writable. And I, I will say this, we, we worked with, uh, with, with some contacts over at AWS to, to feed them that data. And they worked with their customers to tell them, hey, you need to secure your problem. And so maybe that's a more scalable model, right? Where I can identify a thing that encompasses, that impacts a broad swath of customers for a specific organization. And there's a single point of, you know, way of, of trying to address it. What used to be very dedicated, you know, more advanced actors were taking care and were taking advantage of these new latest and greatest vulnerabilities. It seems to have spread, everybody's learned from each other. And so the ransomware actors have, have adopted the techniques of the espionage actors and, and the cyber criminals, et cetera. And so your attack service has both broadened and the people trying to leverage it, monetize it, ransom it, are, are, has broadened as well. So there are more people targeting you know, the same vulnerable infrastructure, which could, could be why we're seeing, seems like there's this major uptick is because more people are, are in, in on the game. We saw that with with exchange was espionage actors were, were taking advantage of it before it was patched post patch i think it was four days before ransomware actors were, were in the game and and leveraging that that vulnerability to to target organizations so time to time to poc time to actors actors actually using these vulnerabilities has really compressed from months to to weeks or days in some scenarios before we wrap up steve i want to try and prepare our our audience so is from your perspective, is there something new on the horizon? Is there a new threat that's looming or is it going to be more of the same? What's your impression of, of the next 12 to 24 months? I think ransomware is, is, is going to be the, the thing that, that keeps popping up in, in the media. We have organizations paying out big ransoms 
they don't have have the capability to defend against it. To the point made earlier, if once they're in, you're just screwed. So your traditional IOCs for for PowerShell or Cobalt Strike or whatever, I mean, they can be helpful. Uh, but if you're if you're already seeing that activity in your environment, you know the door's already open, and therefore, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, a ticking clock. I feel like organizations are going to to struggle with this, and we're seeing a little bit of action by by the U.S. government, and I think that can be positive. But the payouts are are immense right now, and so there's a risk reward scenario going on where I think these actors are going to to continue to to hammer organizations in in the next six to twelve months. And if if it's uh, more expensive to restore from backup, they're going to pay the ransom. Yep. I mean, well, look at Colonial. They paid the ransom. The decryption keys were slow or didn't work, and therefore they restored from backup anyways. So I, so having a backup is still important, but how, are, how do you defend against that kind of extortion play? I think we do need a broader policy and government intervention at that point. That's not something that IT organizations are, uh, you know, are, are, are traditionally equipped for. It's a really sobering thought, just where we're at. I mean, it, it used to be one thing. It was just it was either botnets, just scanning your network, or just some, I, I hate to use the stereotype, but it, it was just some kid in his mom's basement that was, that was screwing around, seeing what he could get access to, and it inevitably caused damage, whether intentionally or accidentally. But I mean, now we're talking about state actors, we're talking about well-funded, well-organized organizations. And, and you're right, the, the, the IT operations of the past decade just aren't equipped to deal with, with threats at this level. So I... I mean, I, w- I want to get Brandon and Steve, I, I, I want to get both your, your thoughts as, w- as we close, but I, I feel like we have to deal with this issue before the code goes live. We, we need to start with the libraries. We need to start with the open source projects that build so many of the applications and the environments that we use today. We need to spend more time work- working with open source projects, working with developers, instilling good practices, building good templates that you can build other applications from, start at the top of the pipeline, work our way down. That way, by the time the code actually hits production before customer data, before credit card numbers are actually traveling across the wire, that we've we've seen multiple different types of automated scans. And this this all has to be automated. There's no way with with the snowball of, of application development that we can expect developers and systems and security administrators to deal with all these different types of threats from a manual perspective. We just, that's just asking too much uh, of an operations team. It's, we've got to go to, to the projects that are key to so many of the applications that we use today and work our way forwards from there. I'll, I'll quickly just uh, make a quick comment, but the essential, like it, it goes back to an earlier episode. One of the guests uh, had mentioned that he, they were working with, with a client that said they were using no open source software. Oh, that was the Tidelift episode. And they said, no, and, and it's, that's impossible. Is it written in Node? It's open source. Like you're using open source libraries. Like, what, yeah, it, it's important to understand. We need to change the way we do, we build software. We need to understand where it's coming from. We need to understand that also, like, and this goes back to something that I'm passionate about, which is continued funding of these maintainers. If the maintainers stop maintaining a library, and that library just sits there for years, but it's used everywhere, <laughs> yeah, you know that's a problem, and it's a long, 
a big long-term fix from my point of view that we need we need to figure out how to keep people either motivated or get more people involved especially when it comes to these things that are now integral to all kinds of enterprise software yeah and i think you get on the point of it's there's there's a lot of implied trust that we're that that maybe organizations haven't considered until until recently we, there's there's a lot of implied oh this is okay because you know it's an open source package and one I've always used, or this is okay because it's a, uh, it's a supplier. And clearly that, uh, that supplier is, has the appropriate security measures in place. And so I think organizations are starting to, starting to take notice and starting to really review where they have that type of implied trust. I think from, from our side in the near term, situational awareness is, is key. In the long term, we can improve DevOps, we can improve the open source projects, you know, we can do things to, to make a, a more secure internet. But in the in the near term, organizations have to be able to react to this changing environment very, very quickly. And, and that's really, you know, what, what we see is you, you can't you can't defend what you don't know about. You can't defend what you don't know is connected to the internet. You can't defend what you don't know you have in your environment. And so those answering those those fundamental questions effectively and then tying it to latest and greatest. What is vulnerable? Who is leveraging? Who are the actors that may be targeting your organization and what are they normally? What what vulnerabilities do they leverage so that we can prioritize this a little bit better? Because it's almost a game of whack-a-mole at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's a great analogy. So Steve, if uh, if our listeners want to follow you, uh, you're, you're pretty active out on the, well, I would say the conference circuit, but that's kind of an interesting situation right now. If folks want to hear more about uh, about you and about what uh, your your thoughts and opinions, where can they go? Uh, so I have a, a Twitter account, se Ginty, that anybody can can go follow. My own security thoughts, other security thoughts from from colleagues and friends, and kind of risk IQ intelligence as it's as it's being de- developed and, and delivered. Awesome. And if if someone wants to follow or, and or hire risk IQ, where where would you send them? Uh, yeah, anybody can go to riskiq.com to check out uh, our careers and more about the company. We have a community that anybody can sign up and register for. It's community.riskiq.com. And when you log into the community, you'll see our Intel portal, which outlines new vulnerabilities, new attacks that, that are taking place that our research team has, has been digging into. Uh, and it aggregates a lot of open source uh, intelligence into the platform. So we distill down pertinent articles on a daily basis and extract known indicators of compromise from those and it's it's free to sign up obviously there are some there are some limitations to the community version but it's a great place to start to understand uh, some of risk IQ's data that's fantastic i really do appreciate you coming on the show today steve it, it's been a real pleasure having this conversation this has been great thank you guys yeah it took us a while but i'm glad we got you on the show i'm glad uh, glad i got a chance to talk with you all right, we will have links to all of Steve and Risk IQ's social and website information in the show notes. But until then, if, if Risk IQ has some really big announcements or if, if there's a new major attack, give us a shout and we'll get you back on the show real soon. Sounds great. All right, Steve, you take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to pseudo.show slash discuss. If you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at pseudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. If you haven't been by the pseudo swag store recently, you're missing out. Go get your pseudo shirt, your pseudo mug, or pseudo hat. Go check it all out at pseudo.show slash swag. Brandon, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or my website, open-tech.net.
And you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time. Thank you.